Good morning, I'm Bud. Today's scripture reading is from the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. Listen for the word of God. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in the heaven above or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall, you shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generations of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who mis misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. For six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son, or your daughter, your male or female slave, your slave livestock, or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, but rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh Sabbath day and consecrated it. Honor your father and your mother so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Let us pray. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies we see. Gracious and loving God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, show us your mercy. Show us your love. Show us your forgiveness and your resurrection power. Bless these human words, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. So... <laughs> Today we continue our series with what is probably the most awkward uh, commandments for everyday conversation. You shall not commit adultery. Of course, the first thing that anybody wants to hear a member of the clergy talk about is sex. So you're probably all very excited as you came to church today. Woohoo! Now, as modern people, we would at least generally agree with the wrongness of sleeping with someone we're not married to when we're married, or even if we're not married, but committed. It's bad, but it's probably not the worst thing we could do. We probably wouldn't put it in our top ten list of sins. But as you can see... The Bible does, right here in the Ten Commandments. Here we're given only a single sentence, you shall not commit adultery, but if you read further, things are flushed out a little more. In the book of Genesis, chapter 20, verse 9, it's called a great sin. In 20, uh, Genesis 26, 10, it's a potential source of, quote, great guilt. 
It's considered so grave that the book of Leviticus sets it up as a capital crime. Adultery is considered such a heinous action that it's one of the primary metaphors that the Bible uses to describe God or describe Israel's turning away from God towards idols. Israel's continually condemned as fooling around on the one true God with false ones, and it always leads to destruction. So you could say that the Bible does seem to have a straightforward view on adultery. It's not good, don't do it, or else. That's pretty much what it says. There's no wiggle room here, pun not intended. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Now, this viewpoint from Scripture seems particularly harsh to us, and no doubt about it, it is harsh. In fact, this is one of those things that we'd probably use to draw the distinction between, say, Western democracies on one hand and the views of, say, the Taliban on the other, who, according to news reports, are re-implementing laws similar to those we find in Leviticus now that they are back in charge. This softening of our views is a welcome change, I'd say especially for women who've historically borne the brunt of shame and punishment when it comes to adultery. Thank God our views have changed and softened, which is mostly thanks to Christianity in the end, but that's a subject for another sermon. Well, we should be very glad that we've left behind some of the brutality of these views. There is something important that the Bible understands that maybe we don't. The Bible puts adultery in the top ten and highly regulates it with laws because human sexuality is extremely powerful and can be extremely destructive. And this is well illustrated with what might be the most famous story of adultery in the Bible, the story of King David and Bathsheba. Here, David the king desires Bathsheba, the wife of his friend, his best friend, Uriah. You know, if you, if you know Leonard Cohen, you'll know he saw her bathing on the roof and the beauty in the moonlight overthrew him. That's David. That is David. So he sends his minions to take her, this woman. We're not told if she consents or not, which really doesn't matter because David's the king. Would she say no even if she could? (laughs) And she ends up pregnant, and in order to not be found out, David orchestrates the death of his friend by putting him in front of the battle line. And when it's found out, David comes clean, he confesses, escapes the death penalty, he's rich, the king after all, but he doesn't escape the consequences. His friend is dead. Not only does Bathsheba lose the baby, eventually when David's confronted by the prophet Nathan, we're told that this affair has put the whole kingdom under God's judgment. It not only ruined his friend's marriage and cost him his life, it put into motion events that bring about the decline and eventual destruction of David's dynasty and his kingdom. His little affair had personal, national, and even international 
consequences. It has all the makings of so many modern headlines from Me Too to the Department of National Defense. Sex can drive us to abuse and oppress another person created in the image of God to satisfy our desires. It can drive us to lie and go through great lengths to hide those lies. It can destroy families and friendships, and it can even cost lives. It can bring down institutions and short-circuit nations. Well, sex is good. Let's make that very clear. Genesis chapter 1, before the fall, sex is a good part of God's good creation. Very good, in fact. But like anything else that's good, it's open to distortion and destruction. It can be so dangerous that Jesus himself warns not only against the act of adultery, he points that even a little lust in the heart can snowball like crazy before you even know it. This whole episode with David is a master class on just how dangerous sex can be. And some of us know the destruction firsthand. We've had to live with the consequences of somebody else's unchecked desires or maybe our own. It's like playing with fire, only that we're not the ones who get burned. It's just as likely to engulf and destroy other lives. It's powerful and it's dangerous, or can be dangerous. In that sense, though, the Bible's not anti-sex. It's simply clear-eyed about this aspect of human nature. This commandment is a sort of guardrail to keep us on the road and to keep us from smashing into innocent pedestrians on the way. Marriage and monogamy... These are a kind of divine fire retardant that keep us from the worst outcomes of our most powerful impulses. And I think that I just lost my cool, young, hip minister cred (laughs) right there. Marriage, kids, do it. Now, you might be thinking at this point, gosh, this sure sounds depressing. (laughs) I mean, if monogamy... And marriage are just to keep us from hurting ourselves and others. They're about as inspiring as a bicycle helmet, right? Or maybe even as claustrophobic as a cage. Might as well risk the other way. At least it's got some fun, dangerous and destructive as it may be. But it's more than just social safety gear, It's no mistake that the language of monogamy is the language of faithfulness. Of faithfulness. Well, infidelity is one of the most common images used to lambast Israel's idolatry in the Bible. Fidelity is used just as commonly to describe God's loyalty to Israel in spite of their many sins. Similarly, the language of bridegroom and bride paints a marital picture of Jesus and his relationship with the church. God simply refuses to give up on us. God's in it for the long haul. God sees us who we are and still says yes 
to eternity with us anyway. Which means that in faithfulness to one another, we can actually learn and experience something about how God is faithful to us. Because a good marriage or partnership isn't one where we're all on our A game, never slipping up, never doing wrong. I mean, I attended a wedding once where the groom wrote his own vows, and he promised to never lose his desire for his bride and to always show interest in her interests, no matter what. Which makes you wonder if a vow is still a vow when it's a flat-out lie. (laughs) Right? But the truth is that our spouses and partners are privy to who we truly are. And they will see us at our worst. The best marriages are ones where we're seen in our totality and loved anyway in spite of it. The best marriages aren't the ones where everybody's always doing what's right, but where forgiveness heals many wrongs. I say this because I know it very personally. Marriage partnership really is intended not just as a way to inhibit our most primal urges, but as a means of grace. As a means of grace. A lifetime of faithfulness is the positive inversion it's the flip side of the prohibition against adultery it's one of the many ways we come to know god and our spouses may not be jesus but they can be the closest stand in for jesus that we will ever know marriage is good news and not just a guardrail. Okay, so we've considered this commandment as a shield against some of our most destructive behavior, as well as the conduit through which we experience the love of God firsthand. But there's one more thing that needs to be said before the amen. Whether Breaking the commandment means doing the deed itself or taking a step along the way, whether it's bodily, emotionally, or virtually. What if we've broken this commandment? It's safe to say that some of us here have. It's safe to say, due to simple statistics, In John's Gospel, chapter 8, we're told of Jesus' encounter with a woman who'd been caught in adultery. Now in the story, we're told the whole town gathers around with hefty stones in their hands. They're ready to implement that death penalty we heard about in Leviticus. It's clear in the story she was caught and she was guilty. This is how the criminal code handles these things. How Jesus handles this, though, is different. Jesus steps between her and the crowd. He puts his own body between this guilty woman and her accusers. 
And then he challenges them. He says, he who is without sin should cast the first stone. Jesus says that anybody who's truly innocent of any wrong and can make these judgments step right up. Toss those rocks right now. Go for it. Of course, none of them can actually do it. So they toss their weapons on the grass and they go home, leaving just her and Jesus, sparing the woman altogether. And after they're gone, Jesus asks her, who's left to condemn you? And she replies, no one. And he responds, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. Go down now and sin no more. Now you'll notice that Jesus doesn't intervene with the crowd by saying what she did wasn't a big deal. Like he doesn't say, guys, lighten up. This wasn't that bad. I mean, we know exactly what she did. I mean, no, we don't know exactly what she did. But she could have destroyed a family, a marriage, a whole community. It likely changed her life and altered her relationships permanently. And he doesn't tell the woman that what she did was actually okay. You could have done worse, you know. No, Jesus upholds the seriousness of the act. The other wrongness of it still stands. The seventh commandment still in effect. Instead of condemning her, though, punishing her, Jesus stands between her and the condemnation of the law. He puts his own body between her and the consequences of her sin, just as he would later do on the cross for all, that time bearing all the world's stones in a single pitch. Even though she's committed one of the top ten worst sins, Jesus Christ, the creator, come creature, forgives her, shows her grace. And in being forgiven, she's set free to live again, to start over. He's raised her from the dead with the word of life. And it's that faithful God at work yet again, the one who's faithful even to those who've been unable to be faithful themselves. That's what we call amazing grace. Which means if you are one of those statistically probable people out there, this same promise is for you. Jesus Christ on the cross stands between you and your condemnation, even though you may deserve it. The only one with the authority to cast the first stone has laid the stone aside for your sake. Even though you don't deserve it, you are forgiven. I know we say this so much. 
We say it every week because we forget it. Every week. But you are forgiven. It's not all there is. It's not all you are. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. On account of Jesus, you are not that person anymore. You are forgiven. You are forgiven. Brothers and sisters, the seventh commandment is given for our great good. On one hand, it is given because human sexuality and all of its beauty can also be a source of deep brokenness, heartache, and pain. Monogamy and fidelity, these guard against our worst impulses and excesses. They save us from ourselves. On the other hand, they are more than that. This commandment is given because marriage and commitment are means of grace, ways to experience the depth and height of God's love for us, to be known, seen, loved, and forgiven as we are known, seen, loved, and forgiven by God. It is a beautiful thing. But perhaps the most beautiful thing is how God deals with us when we haven't kept the commandment, when we've broken it, when we've broken any of them, really. This God is like the spouse none of us could ever be. This God knows us in our entirety, sees us all in our failures and infidelities, and yet refuses to call it quits. For richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish always. Not even at death do us part. And so may the wondrously faithful God have mercy on us and incline our hearts to keep this law. Amen. Please stand for our hymn of the day. Great is thy faithfulness.